This is Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM, Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Good evening and welcome to another episode of Cascade of History here live on Space 101.1 FM. We are the only live radio show all about Pacific Northwest history. A lot of great guests. We're traveling all over the Northwest tonight, multiple, multiple places, uh, including the Spokane area, where we're going to talk to Larry Sabula. He's a history professor at Eastern Washington University in Cheney. And he's involved in a number of projects over there, a social media page, a Spokane History Researcher's Facebook page, which is doing a lot of really cool stuff uh, beyond just the nostalgia that's often seen on uh, Facebook pages and stuff like that. And then later in the show, we're going to talk to Art Gregory. He's the founder and president of the History of Idaho Broadcasting Foundation. That's a nonprofit group over there in the Gem State that's working to preserve the interesting radio and TV history of that part of the Northwest. And But um, if you have any questions or you want to make any comments or you'd like to suggest other guest ideas or other topics for upcoming shows, please send an email to cascadeofhistory at gmail.com. Hope by now you've subscribed to the podcast. If you're not staying up late to listen to the show on Sunday nights, you can get us at um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the old SoundCloud page, too, if you still want to go that route. But um, before we get to our uh, Larry Sabula and Art Gregory... We have a very special guest. I want to see if he's on the line right now. Let's see if I can bring him into the conversation Let's, with us right here. Louis Larson, are you there? Yeah. Ah, terrific. Let me turn your volume up here so everyone can hear you. You know, um, Louis, I've known for many years, October 21st, a couple days ago, was the 60th anniversary of the final day of the 1962 Seattle World's Fair. Hard to believe it's been 60 years ago, before I was born. <laughs> but uh, Louis Larson, who's on the phone with us tonight, he is the last surviving member of the executive team, the guys who were really in charge who put that fair together and made it uh, sing and dance and make a lot of money uh, 60 years ago. Louis, thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. How are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm happy to be here. Terrific. I, I always I always ask you this, and I don't mean to be to put you on the spot, but how old are you? Can I ask you? Is that are you? What's your age? I'm not- I'm 98, yeah. 98, that's awesome. It's, it's really great to talk to you. You've, you've been really generous with your time to me over the years. Uh, we've met and talked about World's Fair stuff many times for other TV and radio projects. You were with me earlier this year when we did that live show from the Space Needle, that live TV show on the 60th anniversary of the start of the fair. Um, that was a great show. That was a great show, Felix. Thank you. It was wonderful to have you there. Now, the um, I want to just talk to you for a couple minutes, um, just because I remember hearing a story. Oh, God, it's probably 30 years ago now. Someone told me that on that very last night of the fair, which was Sunday, October 21st, that when the fair ended, there was a, like a conga line that stretched all around the fairgrounds. All the fair employees from the different pavilions and different uh, vendor booths and everything, there was sort of a big party at the end of the fair. Is it, can you confirm that rumor for me or... Oh yeah, and it, it was uh, everybody was was pretty loose, and, and my role was uh, 
to go around and thank all of the participants for their uh, exhibits, uh, the, the foreign countries and, and all. And, you know, most of them had a bottle broken out in, in the back room and the show was over and uh, <laughs> it was time to celebrate. How, how, how long did it take for you to recover from the World's Fair when it ended 60 years ago, two nights ago? Um, Felix, I've never recovered. <laughs> no, that's a fact. And, and, and you'll talk to people who were engrossed in the fair like I was. I went there, I started in 1960. I was selling a, a space. And uh, I was assistant director of exhibit sales and um, assistant director of public relations. I had two, started out with two roles all, all of a sudden. Uh, Joe Gandhi and I had circled the globe trying to fill the Coliseum, um, which was called the Washington State Pavilion. And, and, you know, uh, that was before it was a, an official World's Fair. And there's a few folks uh, in downtown Seattle that uh, kept referring to it as the Mercer Street Carnival. And uh, uh, when the fair was over, we couldn't find those folks. But, uh, <laughs> Well, it, it's an incredible event. It has an incredible legacy in the Seattle Center, you know, the, the Space Needle, the monorail, plus just all those buildings that were, you know, chained, the uses were changed and they became sort of this, uh, I don't know, this clean slate or this empty palette to sort of paint the future of the city on. And it, none of it would have happened without guys like you who were smart and talented and were able to pull off. I mean, even if it was a Mercer Street Carnival, it's probably the coolest, biggest, exciting, most successful Mercer Street Carnival in the history of mankind. Well, you know, I've I've got some ideas for the future, and also, you know, when you when you look at what happened to the Coliseum, it that that is one of the most remarkable things. And uh, I was invited to the, the the puck drop last year in one of the early games in in December, and that was kind of exciting. And, and I looked at that building, and I thought, oh my God, you know, what it started out to be. And originally, uh, it. Our sales pitch was that when it was complete, it would be a, a sports facility for National Hockey League team, and it would seat 18 to 22,000. Well, <laughs> when they got the sight lines in there, it could only seat 15,5, and so we're 60 years late in getting an NHL <laughs> franchise. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if, if you don't mind, i got a couple ideas that I've, I've been thinking about this for, for the future. Number right. one... Um, you know, some idiot made a suggestion that to take down the high school memorial stand and put a parking garage in it, which would be the worst thing in the world to do. Yeah. But I think that the city and the, and the school board ought to negotiate for that that facility. I think they need to remodel, make it a state-of-the-art small pavilion, uh, have the school board have the first priority and then I'll leave the booking up to the booking office in Shadleton and fill it with those revenue producing events. Yep. Um, that, that's one idea. And the other is where the where the fun force was is a blank spot of ugly looking ground. And I think there needs to be a gigantic Indian longhouse there and, and a and an Indian center right in the center of but I wanted to call it the Chief Seattle Center. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, when I, when I was growing up, 
the previous to the Sea Fair was a thing called Potlatch Days in Seattle. And I'm sure you know all about it and researched all of it. But, uh, uh, and it, it concentrated on the heritage of the Native Americans in this region. And yeah. I think a huge a, a gift shop, a, a cultural center right right in that spot would, would work I think that'd be great. I like how you're always thinking about the future, Louis. That's I think that's the secret to your to your longevity. Listen, I have to get going on to my next guest. I hope we can do this again sometime, and I'll I'll be reaching out to check in with you. But uh, thanks for coming on to Cascade of History, Louis Larson, the uh, last surviving executive, the guys who really pulled it all together and put on the most incredible event in Seattle history that ended 60 years ago, last Thursday. Good night, Louis. Thanks for joining us. Good night. Thanks, Peter. All right, we will be right back after this. All right. Well, we're back on Cascade of History. Thank Louis Larson for joining us. I'm going to invite our next guest on here. Larry, can you hear me? I can. Ah, terrific. Thanks for joining us there. Um, added uh, Louis Larson, a guest at the last minute, because I, the 60th anniversary with a, of the World's Fair ending was the other day, October 21st. And Louis a great guy, always fun to have on. So I had him on uh, talking briefly about how that uh, how that fair played out 60 years ago this year. So now... Um, you're, we're talking to you from Spokane tonight, I assume, right? That's right, right. Spokane, Washington. And your day job, your full-time history day job, is at Eastern Washington University in Cheney. Well, sort of. I have a joint position. I'm half-time a professor at Eastern Washington University. The other half of my job is at the Washington State Archives, where I'm the assistant digital archivist for the state of Washington. Okay. And how long have you been in, uh, at Cheney? Uh, Fifteen years now. Okay. Now, I think you and I first connected, we talked about um, the the redlining project that you were involved in there in um, going through old records around the state. What's what's the status on that project these days? Oh, boy, it's a big one. Um, the state legislature last year passed House Bill 1335, and it asked uh, Eastern Washington University and the University of Washington to find all of the racially restrictive property documents in Washington State. Um, those are documents that are fairly common in the 30s and 40s, especially around this period. They would say, in this new housing development we're laying out, um, only members of the white or Caucasian race may live. Um, mm-hmm. You know, something like that. You know, so they're, they're pretty offensive. And they're still on the books. They're unenforceable through the Supreme Court ruling in 1948, but they're still out there. And people run into them when they're researching their property, and it's usually not a good day for them. So the state decided to get rid of them, but there's no central list of all where all these are. Um, so my team, we are going into little courthouses in Asotin and Republic and uh, places like that and pulling down dusty volumes and leafing through them. And we're, we're finding these records and cataloging them. That's pretty cool. I, you know, I, I have family in Spokane and I end up getting over there, I don't know, several times a year. Probably going to be there sometime later this month, actually, in, uh, for Thanksgiving next month. But um one of the places that I drive by, and I always, I stop there when I can, because when I look over on I-90 over to the right hand as I'm headed east, is the town of Sprague. 
And to me, it always looks like a little um, model railroad layout. Like there's a little feed, the grain elevator, and the, and the little yeah, main street. It yeah. looks like it's like if you if you didn't drive close enough, you'd think it was HO scale or O scale or some kind of a model railroad layout. And the grass would all be, you know, uh, sawdust turned green with food coloring. But it's actually a real town. And I, you had a post. I saw some stuff on social media a week or two ago or maybe a little bit longer ago than that of a cemetery that you were doing some research on in Sprague. What, what was that all about? Sure. Well, I, when I drive around the state, and I'm doing a lot of it these days with the Spatial Covenants Project, I always try and stop at a few old cemeteries along the way. Um, to me, cemeteries are museums of the common man. Um, people who are remembered or memorialized nowhere else are you know, remembered, remembered in a cemetery, um, if, if somewhat tersely. Um, so I stopped there, and there's one I'd always meant to check out is Lakeview Cemetery. We don't really know when it was founded. Like a lot of these rural cemeteries, whatever paperwork was kept um, was lost over the uh, over the more than a century. But the earliest grave is 1882. Uh, Sprague itself was incorporated in 1883, but even before that, there was like a sheep camp there in the 1870s called Hoodooville. Um, and this is an unmaintained cemetery, which is kind of my favorite to visit, even though they're sort of sad. So the uh, you know the bushes and the you know and the prairie has grown up around it. The headstones of you know many of them have sort of tumbled over. Uh, there's 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 a wistful uh, feel to it. <laughs> and um, there were a number of there were sort of either unmarked graves or graves of was it unknown soldiers? Yeah, yeah. The most interesting thing in, in cemeteries, you know, there I say they're a museum of the common man, but they're a museum with more questions than answers. You know. What you get for most people is the, the dates of their life and maybe a finger pointing up towards heaven suggesting a possible destination and, yeah, yeah. and not a lot not a lot more. Um, what interested me here very much is that there is one section, um, kind of a small section of Civil War veterans. There's the distinct white marker in cemeteries that the War Department provided for, um, for uh, United States veterans of the Civil War, um, not for Confederates, but for, for U.S. soldiers. And um, there's a little little collection of, of eight of those together, which is sort of unusual. But more unusual is that four of them said unknown U.S. soldier and nothing more. Now, I mean, what are the possibilities that what, what could those actually mean? Or what, I mean, what, I, can th- I can't really think of any scenario after 1882 where that would be something where there would be unknown soldiers in that part of the state or the territory. Yeah. Yeah, and eventually I uncovered a record that suggests that it was 1906 those stones were placed there over older internments. That doesn't really help us much. There's no, um, I've been scratching my head about this, and if any of the listeners have an idea, I'd love to hear it. There's no battle around Sprague um, in the Indian Wars or at any other period. So these are veterans and not like soldiers killed in battles. These are veterans who were buried there. So I have not been able to determine if, if someone is living in Sprague and is a, people know that they're a veteran of the Civil War, they might know their name, you know? So, um, and so, four of them. It, it, so is the scenario, is it one possible scenario that there were earlier non-permanent markers that were named and those somehow got lost, but the fact the graves were known was, I mean, is that, is that, I mean, is that one of the options? I'm sort of scratching my head to figure out what, what, what route you would get to the four unknown veterans. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking the same thing, that um, these, these internments were earlier than 1906. Uh, many of these little cemeteries, the initial graves, are uh, wooden planks, yeah, or, yeah. A, or a name or something is carved into them. And uh, even in this dry climate of eastern Washington, you know, a few decades out, 
Um, they're often they're often about gone. So I suspect they're earlier internments than 1906, but we're still left with the problem of who these men are and why it, no one knew their names. Perhaps the old wooden things had their names on it and yeah. were too decayed to read. But and, we're guessing. And is that cemetery is it is it still actively maintained by somebody? Oh, it's barely maintained at all. Eventually, um, through the Facebook group we're about to talk about, I uh, met a person named Pat Whipple who um, is doing a little bit of maintenance. He's cutting paths to the headstones. By the way, I created a, a photo album of the pictures I talk, and I've sent you the uh, the link to it. So if there's some way for you to share that with listeners, you can go ahead and do that. Oh, I definitely will, um, yeah. But um, the, the, the sole maintenance, you know, there's no irrigation or anything like that. Um, an interesting feature of it is when these people died in the 1880s and 90s and 19-aughts mostly, often a lilac bush was planted beside the grave. And in the more than a century since, those lilac bushes have become lilac thickets. <laughs> and, you, uh, and you sort of push your way into the middle of the thicket, and there's a headstone there. Wow. Um, it's, it's really a spooky place. You know, I, I drive around the state a lot, either, you know, heading off to visit family in Spokane, but then earlier I did a couple of years, a couple of stints with Humanities Washington, you know, going to libraries and old folks' homes and, you know, community sure. centers from here to, you know, Ferry County and everywhere in between. And uh, I'd often find myself in places like that. They were either maybe not as, as evocative as what you're describing, but some interesting sort of wide spot in the road or some old building or something. And I was always the only person there. <laughs> And I always wondered, yeah. why, are, why aren't there more people doing this? Why am I the only one in this incredible, you know, this incredible spot that I'm sure other people have found? Why, am I the, why, why aren't there a dozen people here at this very moment doing the same thing? So, I don't know. Is it, is oh. it, is it a lonely pursuit? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it sort of is. You know, those of us who are interested in these things find each other, uh, as you and I have um, right now. Um, I send my students out into cemeteries. In, in my public history class at Eastern Washington University, there's always what, what the students call the, the cemetery assignment, where they go into a cemetery and write a history of the town using only the cemetery as a source. Nice. So the paper isn't, here's my visit to the cemetery. The paper is, what's the history of Sprague as far as I can figure it out here? That's what cool. was the ethnicity, the lifespan, the wealth, the inequality, the military service, the religious beliefs in this town? Um, you can really get a lot. Yeah, that's that. That one, one thing about Sprague, and this is, I just occurs to me, and I don't, I don't expect you to know the answer to this, but have you ever seen all the trucks that are parked in the center of town in that big vacant lot? They're all a bunch of commercial trucks from the looks like the twenties and thirties and forties. Have you ever seen the truck, yeah, the ab- truck graveyard? Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know a lot about it, except that some local person there has, has purposely set them up as sort of a sort of a honey trap for photographers to yeah. come in and take a few pictures and maybe spend a little money at the few places in Sprague that are still open to spend a little money. Boy, it worked for um, me, that's for sure. I mean, there's just, there's all these great trucks with really, like really good color and like the, you know, the name of the different quarry or the uh, landscaping company or fire department or whatever it was on the side. And that, that stuff is, it is like, it is like honey to be attracted to that stuff. Yeah. Um, and like, and like many of these little Eastern Washington towns, uh, there's more people in the graveyard outside of Sprague than there are in Sprague. <laughs> Um, you know, the the population, in the case of Sprague, peaked about 1895 uh, wow. because the Northern Pacific had a railroad, um, you know, kind of a repair yard there. And the town burned up in 1895 and Northern Pacific moved its rail yard out, its works out of there. And the town really never recovered. Um, and typically in eastern Washington, these little towns, the population peaked around 1920 or so. Yeah, and didn't the, the rail line from Spokane to 
Portland followed like what became 395 down into the like down toward the river. So a lot of those towns that are on 395 are actually originally northern Pacific towns. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Well, you're listening to Cascade of History. Our guest is Larry Sabula. He's over at Eastern Washington University and involved in a number of projects over in that part of the state, that part of the Northwest. We've just been talking about the cemetery and the uh, truck cemetery in Sprague, Washington. Now, um, I think, yeah, the reason that I reached out to you to, to come on the show was there's a – we often talk about social media on this show because there's a – I don't. I wouldn't call it a love-hate relationship, but I have a I have strong reactions to to stuff that gets posted on social media, and I feel like Facebook, in particular, has been in the in the best in, in the best case like a boon for local history, where um, you know a museum can post pictures of something like the Seattle World's Fair, some official photographs taken by the Post Intelligencer or something, but then someone else can comment on it and post a picture of themselves, you know, at the on the carnival rides or at the, you know, at some yeah. pavilion or something. It's just sort of a level playing field for history-related content. And that's that's when it works at its best. But then you also get people, you know, the thing that drives me the most crazy, and this, this, is, this isn't what I want to focus on, but someone will post a picture of, you know, let's say it's let's say it's the middle of July, and someone posts a picture of the the Frederick and Nelson Department Store Santa Claus, and I think like, <laughs> and with no comment, just a picture. Here, you know, here I am with Santa in 1949 or whatever, and it just drives me crazy <laughs> because it's it's not topical, it's not pegged to anything going on. It's just this person has an old picture and they posted it. And th- but then you know, after I I call, I never respond or never complain. After I calm down, I think, okay, this person likes this picture and they post it. That's what that's what social media is really supposed to be for. I should just you know. I should just forget about it, not not get so not get so <laughs> excited about it. But um, and there's a lot of these nostalgia sites for different cities, different regions. You know, Seattle has them, Portland yeah. has them, Boise has them, the North Idaho has them. But then you have this sort of slightly different take on this group that you put together. How, actually, how old is that group now? It started in 2014. Okay, well, that's a while ago. And, and t- now tell everybody what it's called. It's called Spokane History Researchers. And it's a Facebook group for local and to some extent regional history research, not like remembering, um, you know, who remembers cruising down Maine, who remembers going to Expo. Um, but people are actually doing the work. And I remember when I, I think I signed up for that about a year ago when I was in Spokane. I was wandering around South Hill near where my relatives lived at that point, And I found a, the street name embossed in the concrete, Race Street, R-A-C-E, but then the street name on the sign was totally different, and I was like, "Wait a minute! This is this is something for a Spokane History Researchers Group." And uh, yeah. I remember I, I posted it, and then or I, or I asked to join or something, and I waited. You know, I don't know how long it took for someone to approve my membership and approve my post, but I was sort of afraid that it wouldn't make the cut. Uh, but it uh, finally did, and then lots of people responded. I don't know if we ever got an exact answer about it, but um, it was very different from the other more nostalgia-focused sites where. People tend to speculate a lot and sort of, you know, just make not make stuff up. I mean, I, I, I'm making it sound like I'm really a crank. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not as big a crank as I'm making myself sound right now. But um, I, now, has, now, and it seems I've, I think um, on that same page, I not too far from where that race street was, where I found the house where the um, the Warehouser kidnappers had stashed little George Warehouser, and the house is still there, looks completely unchanged from what that was the 1920s yeah. when Warehouser was kidnapped. I can't remember the exact date of it, but. Um, I do. I follow along pretty close, and I see people posting things and getting really good answers, or other people diving in with research they have access to, or resources, whether it's a newspaper database or some kind of a, a an early map that shows different, you know, commercial things. It seems like it has a really good cooperative spirit. Yeah, it's it's a. Fa- I've I've gotten so much more than I've ever given to that to the group. 
Um, I started because I was frustrated with the existing Facebook groups that were kind of nostalgia-oriented. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I'd go on to a group called, you know, you're probably from Spokane if you remember or something like that. And mm-hmm. I'd say, hey, does anybody know about X? And I get a bunch of answers that were not on point, <laughs> but it's politely. <laughs> uh, the other thing that happens in these nostalgia groups is there's no, uh, there's no citation. So people, you know, share some old photograph, and I go, that's cool, where did you get that? And they go, I got it on the Internet. Um, yeah, it's yeah. not a helpful answer. <laughs> um, the other thing is um, a few years, well, about 2012, I started a website called um, Spokane Historical, this kind of place-based storytelling for Spokane history. And my students write stories for that, and they post them with their name on it. And people in these nostalgia groups were just grabbing those stories and copying the text and posting it as if they had written my students' work. <laughs> so I, that's how I discovered that people don't know what plagiarism is. They hate being called a plagiarist. Um, so I just I got so I got this idea. Well, there's a lot of people researching local history, and we're we're currently experiencing a revolution in local history, Felix. Uh, yeah, absolutely. All these new digital archives opening up these newspaper databases you're able to do kinds of research that you couldn't even 10 years ago mm-hmm. um, with real quality and going back to the primary sources. Not not Grandpa told me anymore, but, uh, yeah. you know, real real research. And I knew there were other people doing that. So I thought, maybe I can create this group and they'll show up and I can ask them questions. And, and it worked brilliantly. That's great. Do you know, I, there must be other examples, or do you know of any other examples in other parts of the country, other regions, where they've either copied your idea, you know, specifically or just organically came up with the same approach themselves? You know, there must be, but I have not found them. Occasionally when my research takes me to Seattle or some other town, you know, I look for that Facebook group to ask my question, and I find almost all nostalgia groups or a group dedicated to one small slice of history. You know, there's a Spokane mid-century modern or a Seattle mid-century modern group. It's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Um, If I have a question about the railroads, that's not the place. Yeah, and I know that um, through some of the conversation that uh, followed or the comments a week or so ago when this, I forget what it was we were even initially talking about, there were several people that I know here in Seattle who said, God, we should do something like this here in Seattle. So I think there is a group that's going to be launched that will pretty much, you know, pay tribute to, not steal your wonderful idea to have a, a research-based thing that, that kind of limits limits the nostalgia. I, I, I definitely, I mean, I, I notice sometimes on, on the Spokane History Researchers page, some nostalgia will creep in there. Yeah, yeah, so it's kind it's, of whack-a-mole for me. It's usually, it's usually, no, I thought it was usually you posting it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm a, I, I, I think I'm a benevolent dictator, but every dictator <laughs> thinks that. Now, don't they? Um, yeah, my, my feeling has always been about the group that nostalgia will drown out the history if we let it. So if somebody asks a question about Expo, um, you know, I make it clear to people, I don't care that you were at Expo. I'm sorry. Ooh. I mean, I'm very happy for you that you were. I wish I had said, but don't post that here. That's not the question. Okay. Uh, well, the question. I'm or gonna, sit on your hands. I'm going to write that down and make a note to myself because I was thinking about doing some Expo stuff. So um, what what is going Do you know what's going on? I've heard some different uh, rumblings about the 50th anniversary of Expo coming up. Have you heard anything as, as to what's planned or what's going on? You know, I'm not tightly plugged into that, but one of my colleagues at Eastern, uh, Bill Young, he wrote a book called The Fair in the Falls. It's one of two two great books about the history of Spokane. And uh, I know he has been involved in some things. I know there's some effort to commemorate King Cole, who was the organizer of Expo, and, you know, conversations about what they're going to do. Is it going to be a statue or a scholarship? 
fund or you know how do how do we honor this man who had such a dramatic impact and I mean, Expo in Spokane, which I was old enough to go to, but we didn't. My one of my older brothers went. I didn't go to Expo '74. Um, but the time I've spent in Spokane in the last 15 years, I've had family living there. It's uh, it's so similar to what they did in Seattle in 1962 in terms of not just having a big carnival for six months, but actually building a bunch of resources that would then be able to be converted into regular sort of year-round civic use after the fair. And so it's it's still and and Bill Young's book. That's a, that's a, that is a great book. What um, What's the other great book about Spokane? Before I go too far in my little riff about the fair, <laughs> Breaking Blue, Breaking Blue by Timothy Egan. Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's one of his first books, if not his first book, right? It goes I back think, a ways. I, think, I don't think it's his first book, but it's the one he wrote on to bestseller status. It's about a uh, a murder mm-hmm. of a uh, police officer up in Newport, Washington, in the night in the Great Depression, and how fifty years later, a new investigator, Tony Bamonte. Um, cracked the case and discovered the Spokane police were involved in that murder. Oh, man. Okay. I have, I've seen that on the shelf there at Auntie's Bookstore in Spokane, but I haven't picked it up. And I, I read Bill Young's book. I'm, gonna, I'm planning on reading it again, getting ready for the 50th of Expo 74, because one thing I've noticed, we did, we did a, I was involved in the 40th anniversary of the Seattle World's Fair 20 years ago when I worked at the Museum of History and Industry. And then I was kind of peripherally involved with the 50th anniversary 10 years ago, and God, the difference between 40 and 50 with a big civic event, so many more people are still alive for the 40th than make it to the 50th. <laughs> sure. It's really, it's, it's, I've seen that yeah. now a couple times. It's like a phenomenon. So in some ways, <laughs> the 40th anniversary of, of, of the Expo 74 probably would have been, would have been more people available to tell the stories and, and share what happened. And, you know, again, it, that, that nostalgia, that balance between nostalgia and history, um, I mean, the stuff I do on the commercial station here in Seattle, I would say the bulk of the people listening are listening out of nostalgia. They don't, I mean, they they probably don't care so much about how much research I've done or how much I've vetted the sources or sure. how much I've confirmed, th- confirmed things, as long as the story is good, right? So that's that, that sweet spot there between, it's like public history. I mean, that's what, that's what, I mean, that's what you teach in your class is that notion of sort of engaging a broader public audience, but doing it with, with real, honest, good history, right? Yeah, because I mean, let's 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 just say it outright. A lot of local history is really bad. Yes, um, <laughs> it's just you know it's the stories Grandpa told that get mimeographed over the decades, and then they get brought into new new platforms. Uh, yeah. The other day, I was looking on TikTok for Spokane <laughs> history content, and I found you know where I'm going here. I found a TikTok video from some <clears throat> Tacoma guy about Spokane, about the, the vast network of underground tunnels in Spokane. And oh. it, those, don't, those don't exist. That's, oh. that's a myth that's been around forever. So yeah. It's like playing whack-a-mole. So here, and of course, you get you know, a lot of likes and people going, oh, that's so cool. I live in Spokane. How come I never knew this? Yeah. Well, because, because it isn't true as why you didn't know it. But, All right. well, you know, what did Mark Twain say? A lie can go around the world while the truth is still tying its yeah. Well, we'll have to we'll have to have you back again to do some myth busting about Spokane myths and other history myths. And plus, I mean, right where where you live and the work you do, you're you're the perfect guy to talk to for stuff like this because you understand you understand why it's important to do real history, but you also understand how to engage with an audience. And not everyone gets that. So I, I appreciate the work you do. I appreciate the stuff you've done on the the redlining stuff, and then that the social media posts you do are always great. Lots of great photographs and good facts and stuff. So. I hope you can join us again here on Cascade of History. Um, will that something maybe we can give you a call and have you join us sometime, sometime in the future? 
I'm at your service, okay. Felix. I'm just having fun with this stuff. And then, can, can you give me a can you give me the lowdown, the real lowdown on the tunnels that you that you know really do exist in Spokane? <laughs> there, I mean, there 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 were no like pedestrian <laughs> tunnels under Spokane, or like a couple that went under a street somewhere. Yeah. What people get confused about is that there were these um, I'm forgetting the term now, but these basements that extended under the sidewalks, and these were in every American city. Yeah, and so some some. People get down on those and, and say, oh, it's a system of tunnels. Well, they don't connect um, in, yeah. in almost all cases. And any kind of underground tunnel gets stories attached to it that are completely made up. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. That's so often happens. They, anyone who's done the Seattle Underground Tour, which are real tunnels from a very different process, yeah. has heard a whole bunch of fake history uh, along the way. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, but most of the people who hear that are tourists, and they leave, and they, they don't do any damage. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Bad, bad history makes me grumpy, Felix. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. No, I, no, I think I, I'm just, I'm trying to just, I'm just trying to rein it in a little bit because you know I don't want, I don't want to have this turn into just a, you know, you and me being grumpy about this stuff. But I'm, I'm, I'm right there yeah. with you on all this stuff. So, all right, that's Larry Sabula in Spokane. Thank you for joining us tonight on Cascade of History, and we'll have you back, I promise, in the future. Thanks, Larry. <laughs> Thank you. Bye bye. All right. Well, uh, it's time to play our next episode in the uh, wonderful Olympia Beer Saga from their 1946 production that they produced to celebrate their 50th anniversary. The, uh, the Hollywood level of effects are over the top, and the announcer, of course, is the, gr- the great uh, William Conrad. So here it is, episode four of The End of the Oregon Trail. In 1895, a new business was destined to come to that historic place at the end of the Oregon Trail near the Tumwater de Chutes Falls. In July of that year, Leopold F. Schmidt made an important trip from Butte and Deer Lodge, Montana to the coast. An able public servant, Montana pioneer of 1871, seven years county commissioner of Silver Bowl, and a member of the Montana Constitutional Convention and Legislatures. Mr. Schmidt, as a brewer, had long cherished the desire of finding a site for a brewery with that most important ingredient of all beer, fine, clear, pure artesian water. And that desire was what brought him to Olympia in July of 1895. In Brown's Barbershop one day, Mr. Schmidt says, Say, incidentally, Mr. Body, where can I find a good, honest real estate man? (laughs) That's a good one, Mr. Schmidt. I'm shaving one now. I'd like to have you meet Alex Drysdale. Well, imagine that. How do you do, Mr. Drysdale? Glad to know you, Mr. Schmidt. Interested in some property? Yes, I am. I'm looking for the proper site to establish a brewery. Well, I might have something to interest you, but I'm afraid I can't show it to you today. This is Saturday. I'm going fishing. Salmon are running. (laughs) Of course, we, we can't be looking at property with the salmon running. Say, if you'd like to, Mr. Schmidt, why not join us fishing? We could at least talk about your problem. All right, Mr. Drysdale. I don't think the salmon would mind. So you see, Mr. Drysdale, what my problem is. I believe I understand you, sir. In other words, while transportation and cheap power for driving the refrigeration and other brewery machinery are important to me, they are secondary to an ample and constant supply of water 
good for every phase of the brewing process. I see. Well, you learn something every day. I had no idea that water was so important to good brewing. The brewer must select the water, Mr. Drysdale, with extreme care. Its purity is paramount. It must not be too hard due to lime or other mineral content. It must not contain too much vegetation, for while that might not necessarily be harmful, it would affect the flavor of the beer. It must be pure. It must be the finest. <laughs> oh, yes, it, it must be wet, too. <laughs> well, Mr. Schmidt, that's a pretty tall order. If you care to do so, I'd like to have you see some properties that are listed with me. However, I won't promise you'll find what you're looking for. Well, Mr. Schmidt, I'm afraid we've just about exhausted every possibility. That's too bad. I had such great hopes. There's only one more place I can possibly think you'd be interested in. That's the Biles and Carter Tannery site at Tumwater, down at the extreme southern end of Puget Sound. Quite a historic spot, just across the waterway from the old Crosby flour mill. Oh, yes. Isn't that where the Simmons party settled after coming over the Oregon Trail in 45? That's right, Mr. Schmidt. A wonderful story, the story of the Oregon Trail. Yes, and a wonderful story that will continue this time next week as we uh, get to episode five of the end of the Oregon Trail, courtesy of the Olympia Brewing Company. All right, it's Cascade of History. I'm Felix Bunnell. We're uh, about to be joined by our third guest of the evening. Let's see if he's there right now. Art Gregory, can you hear me? Yes, I ah. can hear you well, Felix. Wonderful. Thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. Uh, we're the only live radio show about Pacific Northwest history, and you know your broadcast history there in Idaho because you're the president and founder of the Idaho Broadcast History Foundation. Um, now, that's a project that you've been... How long, how long ago did you start that organization? Well, Felix, uh, we started it in 2004 and then became active in uh, 2006 and have been doing it ever since, so about 18 years now, and recently purchased an old radio station building, an Art Deco-style building in downtown Nampa, Idaho, and hope to open that as what we'll call the Idaho Broadcasting History and Education Center. That's great. Now, I've seen some pictures of that old, was it KFXD in Nampa? Correct. Uh, KFXD uh, call letters were assigned alphabetically in 1925, and it was a radio station owned by a Packard car dealership in Logan, Utah, and they got the radio station so they could sell car radios. Oh, wow. Now, and so that station, uh, what was the brief history of KFXD? Is it, is it still on the air? Is there, when's the last time the station was in the building that you're buying? Well, uh, they were last in the building in 1963, but KFXD has got a very colorful history and was actually listened to quite a bit up in the Pacific Northwest because it's on 580 on the dial, or it was at that time, and has a powerful directional signal that uh, would send it up to Seattle at night. And quite a number of ex-KFXD employees were able to listen to their old radio station at night or the uh, record companies that were in Seattle. The distributors and promo people could listen to KFXD and often did. But they started in Logan, Utah in 1925, the call letters were alphabetically issued. 
which uh, takes you back a long way. <laughs> so it was part of the KF series, like KFRC, KFBK, and all kinds of other oh, yeah. classic stations that uh, have been on the air a long time with original call letters. And uh, the uh, car dealership pretty quickly figured out that owning a radio station, that you had to get a license for every three months. And that was how long the licenses were issued back then, Felix, was for a three-month period. And then you had to apply again. And it was complete chaos going on with all the frequency changes and power increases and uh, shared time. Many stations were on the same frequency and had to share time with another station. So they uh, sold the radio station to an unsuspecting couple in Logan, and uh, they kept it for less than a year and bailed out and sold it to a fellow by the name of Frank Hurt and H-U-R-T. And Frank owned a radio repair shop in Jerome, Idaho, and he bought the radio station equipment and the call letters, KFXD, and moved them to Jerome and ran it out of there for about two years, uh, 27 to 29. And in 1929, the station that is Boise's oldest radio station, uh, KFAU, another one issued alphabetically, <laughs> call letters prior to KFXD, <laughs> KFAU uh, got bought, and uh, they changed the call letters to KIDO ah. to match core in uh Eugene, Oregon, K-O-R-E. They own CORE in Eugene, and they wanted an Idaho-based call letter, so they got K-I-D-O wow. in 1928. And the people <laughs> in nearby Nampa, Idaho, it's a little bit of the Seattle-Tacoma rivalry. <laughs> Seattle had a station, and Tacoma didn't. In this case, it was Boise had a station, and Nampa didn't. So they went to the guy in Jerome and said, if you'll move your radio station to Nampa, we will support you. And he did in 1930, and KFXD has been around in the Boise Valley since 1930. The station is still on the air, but it was uh, a confusing thing that happened. A similar thing happened in Seattle a long time ago. KOMO and KJR switched frequencies. And that happened uh, many, many years ago, and... uh, same thing happened in Boise in 2000. KIDO and KFXD switched frequencies, huh. and 580 became 630, and 630 became 580, and we've been confused ever since. <laughs> Wait, let me, let me write this down. <laughs> well, let me get an Idaho map follow. and a pencil. <laughs> yes, it's hard to follow, and, and uh, us radio autos don't like it, but what happened was the 630 frequency was directional at all times uh. and had a knoll through a big uh, development area in uh, Boise called Eagle, Idaho. And the knoll was so, stri- so strong that when you would drive through the knoll at night, other radio stations would come in for a brief period of time. And you it was like going through outer space. Oh, the wow. radio station just went away. And Clear Channel, who had bought both KFXD and KIDO, did a flip-flop, and they switched the frequencies, and KIDO became 580 in Nampa, which was KFXD's original frequency, and 630, the original KFAU station that started in Boise High School 100 years ago, Felix, in 1922, that station then became 
KSXD. So the call letters are still around, and uh, we're actually planning a big uh, KSXD get-together on Friday afternoon where we're going to play an air check that took place on KSXD when they were the top 40 giant in Boise. Wow. In the Boise market at one point with a 26 share. Nice. KSXD had like, you know, they were the KJR of, of Boise. And uh, anyway, that was from 50 years ago on October 6, 1972. And we're bringing the actual announcer, Jack Sunday, into town from uh, Fargo, North Dakota, and he'll be hosting the program and we'll play his air check from 1972, 50 cool. years ago. He's, he's going to host the segment. And on that air check, Felix, is an original Olympia Olympia beer commercial, the jingle with Oli Oli O. Oh, yeah. That's and a famous a, one. Yeah. It's fabulous. And That's so I great. was really interested to hear the Olympia commercial <laughs> or the Olympia story because in Boise, we. You know, Olympia beer was a favorite, and everyone drank Olympia beer, <laughs> and we heard commercials <laughs> continuously about it's the water that That's makes great. it Olympia well, beer. Why do you—now, I, I, I mean, I know why I love radio history so much, but why is it that you are so excited about Idaho radio history enough where you spend so much of your time and resources putting on these wonderful—I always see your wonderful programs. I get the email about your programs. I can't get down there, of course, to outside of sure. Boise, but um, I always—they always sound really cool, and I know you've got— you've assemble all these resources to get this building lined up and have these plans for the future. Why are you so excited about Idaho broadcasting history? Well, it's a little bit of if somebody, if I'm not going to be the one to do it, who is going to do it? And uh, I have uh, loved radio and television since I was a little kid. Uh, I grew up in Ontario, Oregon for the first five years of my life. And the two TV stations in Boise that we had for many years and still do have them, KBOI and KIDO-TV had just signed on. And uh, many kids like to watch the program. What I liked was the commercial. <laughs> and they ran uh, Perina checkerboard commercials <laughs> with the checkerboard, the checkerboard, look for the sign of, with the checkerboard. And I have <laughs> a recording of me singing that, I think, in 1956, <laughs> me and my twin brother. And there was a program called Utoko Dance Party. Utoko was the Utah Oil Company, later went into Conoco. And they had an announcer on there, Felix, that at the beginning of the program did the Utoko slogan, which was, I'll try to do it like he did. He said, you expect more from Utoko. And... You get it. And I thought, gosh, I don't want to be that guy. I want to be the announcer. So that's what I actually do for a living still. I'm 70 years young, but I work for a lawn, garden, and pet company in Boise that has 13 uh, retail stores. Radio is our primary medium. We have a recording studio in my office. Nice. And I have recorded a radio commercial for that company every week for the last 32 years. Wow. Did you steal that Utoko slogan for the company you work for now and say you expect more and you get it? 
No, not? I did. Uh, I did uh, actually come up with our slogan, which was kind of based on a McDonald's. <laughs> Nobody can do it like McDonald's can. <laughs> and our name of our company is called Zamzos. <laughs> it's a German word, and people would mispronounce it and call it Zamzows. So I came up with Nobody Knows like Zamzos. Ah. And we've got a jingle that sings it 65,000 times a year. We spend over a half a million dollars on Boise Radio. So the joke is, you know, my cats and dogs and kids pay no attention to me when I make a command. But when I walk in a radio station in Boise, Idaho, they stand up and salute the flag. <laughs> now, um, in terms of the development of Idaho radio stations, let's let's just talk about radio. Go because that's probably back far enough. That's that's it's maybe easier to compare. Was there anything specific to Idaho in terms of the way the stations developed or were owned? Or you know, you mentioned the, sort of these rivalries between places like you know Boise and Nampa or Seattle and Tacoma. Was there anything unique to Idaho, or was it just because of that region and then and, and the people living there? It's the station sort of had a had the sound and feel of, of what you'd expect in that part of the Northwest? No, very much, a couple of things are very unique. One I have jokingly called, and literally called, the Seattle Connection, in that Boise's radio stations and TV stations were originally owned by Seattle people. And the station uh, KIDO uh, ended up uh, after the original owner, uh, her husband, died at the age of uh, 44 from a fatal heart attack and left her with uh, the radio station and CORE. She owned half of CORE and CORE owned half of Boise. And they split the sheets and uh, Georgia Phillips was her name, ended up with 100% of KIDO. And uh, she then put on KIDO uh, FM in 1947, one of the first FM stations, if not the first in the state of Idaho. Wow. 1947, and then put on KIDO TV in 1953, a year after I was born in 52. They got stuck in the freeze. Yeah. So you yeah. couldn't apply for the application until March of 53, and they had the application ready to go. <laughs> so this lady put on. Uh, you know, she owned the radio station, the big one in town, KIDO, and then she also owned the first FM station and put on the first TV station. By about 1959, she was out of money because Boise did not have that many TV sets, and it was a competitive market. Another station had gone on the air after them and put their transmitter up on the mountain, huh. and theirs was down on the ground. Uh, advice that they had got from RCA saying, you don't need a tall antenna for a TV station. Uh, you're fine here on the ground. So they put up uh, 700, they were 700 feet above average terrain and put uh, 50,000 watts right into the dirt. And it went nowhere. And the other station was 2,500 feet above average terrain. Wow. And uh, they didn't need that much power. Channel 2 went everywhere and instantly dominated Boise. Matter of fact, Bob Kruger, the manager of uh, KIDO-TV, and then later uh, KTVB, he was, uh, Bob said he got into broadcasting the old-fashioned way. He married a TV transmitter. (laughs) What he did was he married Georgia's daughter, and Georgia Phillips became Georgia Davidson, and she sold 
her radio station to William E. Boeing, Jr. of Seattle. I've heard that name before. <laughs> yes, and Bill Boeing, Jr. Uh, had inherited the uh, Boeing Aircraft Trust, and he, was, he and his mother were running the Boeing Trust, and Bill did what any good son would do, and that is he invested in hydroplanes <laughs> and radio stations, and uh, he owned uh, Keto, K-E-T-O, at 1590 on the dial, but yeah. more importantly, Bill Boeing put on one of the first FM stations in Seattle, still on the air, 101.5, and uh, that was uh, Keto FM, K-E-T-O, and Keto stood for the key to better living. And, of course, then KIDO, he owned that from uh, 1959 until uh, 2000, well, actually until 1976. I was working there at the time, and a familiar name in Seattle and a guy who is God to me and my idol, Jack Link, worked oh, for Bill Boeing Jr. Yeah. And Jack, Jack Link was described as Seattle's good humor man <laughs> by Paul Harvey. And Jack Link and Paul were very good friends. Jack recently just passed away oh, in uh, 2021. And uh, we're sad that Jack is no longer with us, but his son, um, you know, in, has helped us quite a little bit, uh, Tim, Tim Link, and uh, they have been just wonderful members of our foundation. But uh, the other thing is that the, the rival of KIDO was also owned out of Seattle by Saul Hass. Yeah. And Saul Hass uh, put on a radio station in Seattle called KDSH. And the D stood for D, and then the SH stood for Saul Hass. Huh. So D and Sal Hass owned the 950 station, and they were actually on KJR's frequency in Boise, directional wow. at night, of course, to protect KJR. 5,000 watts, 1,000 originally, and then um, immediately went to 5,000. And uh, But uh, he had a, another issue going on, and that is that he was trying to put on uh, Cairo TV, Saul Hass owned KIRO Radio, and he wanted Cairo TV, to, he wanted to get the construction permit for that, and in order to do it, he had uh, a deficit going against him, and that was he had outside interests other than Seattle, so he sold his interest in the Boise TV station fairly quickly, but retained uh, his spot on the board of directors. Matter of fact, we have a gold plate that went on. And that was for station KBOI, by the way. Oh, yeah. It was KDSH, but uh, this is one of the few cases, uh, Felix, where a uh, television station started the call letters. In this case, it was KBOI, who went on shortly after KIDO-TV went on. They're the ones that went on on Channel 2 from the mountaintop at 2,500 feet above average terrain compared to Channel 7, uh, 700 feet. Wow. Uh, and uh, Bob Kruger, where I was headed with that story with him, was Bob Kruger said that uh, as soon as Channel 2 went on the air, Channel 7 became number 5 <laughs> in a two-station market. <laughs> All right, we're going to have to leave it there because we're getting toward the top of the hour here, and i got to wrap up everything here before we get to the station ID and everything. Listen, Art Gregory with the um, Idaho Broadcast History Foundation. It's wonderful to catch up. I think the last time I saw you was down in the Tri-Cities when we did that 
panel discussion on Edward R. Murrow's birthday about the future of radio. That was like yes, 19, that 20, 2015. That's been a few years. Anyway, um, hope to have you back on the show again sometime and talk more about, I want to talk about Larry Lujak and some of the other parts of Idaho broadcast history that I know you'd, you'd have stories to share. So can we have you again on the show again sometime in the future? Absolutely. I'd right. love to do it. All right, Art Gregory, have a good night. Thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. Thanks, Felix. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Well, we are wrapping up this last few minutes here of the show of Cascade of History here on Space 101.1 FM from Magnuson Park, the historic site of the former Sandpoint Naval Air Station. I'm Felix Bunnell. I want to thank our guest, Louis Larson, on the 60th anniversary of the end of the World's Fair, Larry Sabula on all the work he does over in the Spokane area at Eastern and with Spokane History Researchers' Facebook page. And Art Gregory from the Idaho Broadcast History Foundation. Um, please plan on joining us again next Sunday night. We're here every Sunday. We're live at 8 p.m. Pacific time. We're always talking about Northwest history, Washington, Idaho, Oregon, British Columbia. We're the only live radio show that does this kind of thing. Sunday night, in my mind anyway, is the perfect time to talk about local history with wonderful people. So have a good night, and we'll talk to you next week. That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it, that's a slippery spot there. Oh, I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonnell.